If you have your Bibles, we're ready for First Peter this morning. We're starting a brand new series in the book of Peter. So if you have a Bible, if you need to borrow a Bible, we want to make sure everybody has a Bible. Don't be embarrassed. There's tons of them on the back table. The ushers will even bring them to you if you want to raise their hand or get attention. Then, then they'll have a Bible for you. Open it up towards the back somewhere. You're going to find First Peter. And in there is where we're going to begin today. So as you guys know, when we started First John, and we just finished a series, probably one of my favorite that, that we've done here was a study through First John, and John as the Apostle of Love. We, we spent the first week in that study getting to know who John was. And it was important, and I felt like as we read the book of John, First John that is, wouldn't, wouldn't it kind of make more sense for us if we knew something about the author? And so we started with where Jesus first met this guy. And we followed his life and his journey with Jesus. And it brought us to his writings later in, in, the, in the Bible, 70 years later, and chronologically in time. So today I hope to do the same thing with you. Today I hope to carry us and bring us um, up to the point where Peter writes, but I want to go back and start the place where Jesus first met him. I want to do something today that's making me a little bit nervous and scared, but because um, I've never done it before. But I, I want to tell you the story of Peter in first person. So I, I think I got the belly for it, to be Peter, that is. And so I want to um, just share with you from his perspective. So we'll get to that. But let's look at first Peter. And, and just kind of set the tone for First Peter in, in what it is and who First Peter was. I want to start by uh, asking you guys to hold your finger there and turn to Acts chapter 4. Now the interesting thing about Peter and about John and about these writers, some of these writers in the New Testament, is that Peter was a fisherman. Peter was an unlearned, untrained fisherman. He didn't have a college degree. He didn't have a college education. I would even venture to say that Peter wouldn't have had the equivalency of a high school diploma in today's culture. Somewhere along the line, his dad probably, maybe when he was 12, 13, said, all right, enough of that nonsense. You're going to be a fisherman all your life. You don't need to keep going to school to learn how to catch fish. You need to be out here on the boat with me. And I got lots of work to do anyway. So put them books down and get your butt on the boat. And no doubt that's how Peter would have would have grew up. And it was a good life. It was a successful life that he that he had. But but he wasn't an educated guy. And, and then he gets to the year that Jesus dies on the cross. And 50 days later, he's at Pentecost and God sends the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit falls upon Peter and Peter begins to preach and 3000 people get saved. People are speaking in other tongues and everybody's hearing them in their own language, in their native tongues. And Peter sees a guy there and the guy is begging and asking alms for Peter. And Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but what I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. And it says that he was leaping and enjoying and praising God. And, and the, guy, the guy was raised up. And the religious leaders of that day, what did they do to him and John? What did they do? That's a question. What did they do? They arrested him. They put him in prison. They beat him. And they told him, no more will you go out and preach in this name of Jesus. And Peter and John got together, beaten up in prison, and said, whether we obey God or man, it's for you to decide. But as for us, we're going to obey the Lord. 
And they went out the next day and began to preach the gospel. And the religious leaders are baffled. And they're dumbfounded because of the wisdom and the character and the knowledge that Peter had. And look what they say about Peter in in Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were, what is that? Uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And then they realized they had been with Jesus. What an amazing compliment. Basically, they're like, these two knuckleheads are dumb as a box of rocks. They're fishermen. They can tie knots, but they can't put sentences together. And how is it? How is it that they're able to to articulate so well the truth in the Bible and and see the work that God is doing in their lives? And then it says, and then they just chalked it up as they had been with Jesus. Would to God that somebody would say that about me. And you know, if you if you knew me growing up, you'd have to say that about me. When I was 13, I wore a rat tail and I smoked, I, I stunk of whatever I'd been smoking. And I wore a t-shirt that said, just be thankful I'm not your kid. And God took that and he changed me. And I spent time with Jesus and he gave me a future and a hope. And the Bible says that God takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And you know, the interesting thing is that when Jesus chose his 12 disciples, he didn't go to the Harvard grad line and wait for the Harvard grads to come off a of graduation and offer them a, a, a job. He went and got people like you and me. People that were radical. People that were unlearned and untrained like Peter. And he took the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And because they had been with Jesus, they, they had seemed that they were educated and trained men. And Jesus does that today. And so Peter... Let's go back to first Peter. So that's what the people said about Peter. And, and, and just to set the, the, the context with, 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 which, with which Peter wrote his epistle in. John, as we just got through going through, John wrote his, his books, 1st, 2nd John, 3rd John, chronologically when? At the beginning, middle, or end of the Old Testament writings. At the end... Right? He was the last, those were the last three books recorded in the New Testament chronologically, sometime between 90 and 100, um, 70, 75 years after Jesus died on the cross. Peter's writings come somewhere about 65, 63, 65. And at the time of Peter's writings, the, the, the ruler of the world was Caesar Nero. And Caesar Nero was a crazy um, dictator in Rome. Who, who was responsible for murdering six million Christians. He would dip them in wax and he would put them in his garden and he would light them on fire and use them as human candles as he would ride his chariots naked through his gardens singing, well, you are the light of the world! You are the light of the world! He was completely off his rocker. You can go to Christian historians or you can go to secular historians and they'll tell you the same story. That, that all of Rome burnt during the reign of Caesar Nero. Caesar Nero was a madman. He wanted to rebuild Rome and make it bigger and grander than it was. And so he set it on fire. They had a Colosseum there that, that would seat 100,000 people. Roman Colosseum. It wasn't grand enough for him. So he had it set on fire and in its place he built one that would seat 300,000 people. Can you imagine using the bathroom in that place? 
Can you imagine the scale? The largest uh, stadium we have in the United States is in Michigan. It'll hold 107,000. I think the one they're going to build in L.A. is supposed to beat it. 300,000 people. He rebuilt all of Rome. But the word got out because he didn't set Rome on fire by himself. He had help and he had henchmen. And the rumors started to, to surface that he was responsible and he needed a scapegoat. And so he blamed the Christians. And he said, he said lots of things. You know, the Christians kind of, they, they had some, some problems anyways. You know, once they, they gathered, they would eat somebody's body and blood in the, in the sacrament and, and in, in communion when they would take, when they would take communion. You guys look at me like, they ate people's body and blood? No. They ate a little cracker. Calm down, people. They had a little juice they bought at Walmart. And they called it communion. And the world twisted it into mean that they, they did weird things. They were always talking about the being the fire and that Peter's going to write about the world being set on fire. And so Caesar Nero had a perfect scapegoat and he blamed the fires of Rome on the Christians. And what pursued was six million Christians were murdered in the first century. It wasn't until a couple years ago that we've seen that type of per- persecution since that time. But we've passed that number, and today we live in a day, in a place where around the world more Christians a year are, are being mur- murdered than any other time in all of human history. But here in the West, we don't live with that kind of persecution. But, but to set the tone of where Peter wrote, just understand as we go through this, this is the culture. This is the, the life, the reality that he's writing under this rule of Caesar Nero where Christians are being murdered. And, and it's very hard and the church is under heavy persecution. So Peter writes, let's look at it. In chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To the pilgrims, I want you to underline the word pilgrims. To the pilgrims of the dispersion of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want you to underline living hope. So, so Peter, his, his heart, listen, everybody say hope. Hope, say it again, hope. So hope is the absolute expectation of coming good. Hope is the absolute expectation of coming good. You guys ready? The absolute expectation of coming good. Did, did the people that Peter was writing to in his day need hope? Absolutely. And, and, and so Peter becomes, in essence, the apostle of hope. You guys ready for some Bible trivia? Don't look. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let me give you a clue. We call that the love chapter. Hebrews chapter 11. We call that the faith hall of fame. Back to 1 Corinthians 13. So we got faith in Hebrews. Love in, in 1 Corinthians 13. The very last verse of 1 Corinthians 13 says... Says what? Faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is faith. Now I'm just kidding. We'll let we'll let Creffro Dollar preach that sermon, not in this church. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. So in that we have the Apostle Paul who who deals with faith more than any other writers and any other apostles. In essence, he's the he's the apostle of faith. And then we have John, who we've been studying, who's the apostle of? 
I hope you know that one. I'd hate to have to start that whole series over again. No, we got that one, right? He's the apostle of love. And Peter is the apostle of hope. And he's, he writes more about hope than the others. He, his direction is in hope. And so as we just got done studying the apostle of love, now we're going to see Peter in the apostle of hope. And, and this hope that he gives to us. Hope is so powerful. Hope is so absolutely life-changing. There's a science experiment about some rats to illustrate hope. And they had put the rats in water and the rats swam for a certain amount of time and drowned. Then, then they put another batch of rats in the, same, in the water and, and, and when they expected them to succumb and, and stop fighting, they pulled the rats out and they dried them off and they, they gave them hope. And then they placed the same rats who would swim for 30, about 30 minutes before they died the first time. They, they placed them back in the water after pulling them out, cleaning them off, and get, letting them time to refresh and giving them some hope that they could get out of that situation. And they put the same rats back in the water and they swam for 60 hours. 30 minutes with no hope. 60 hours they, they were willing to fight when they had hope. And, and hope is such a powerful, powerful tool in our lives. That hope in Jesus... The Bible talks about in some of my favorite verses, you know, the Bible says that that the world mourns a certain way. And if you've ever seen somebody in the world who doesn't know Jesus or have a hope in Jesus, there's this 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 vitriolic, almost this hateful sometimes this really deep, no hope mourn. And the apostle looks at that and he tells you and me as Christian people, when we mourn, we don't mourn as those with no hope. Because of our hope in Jesus, we see things differently. We have a different worldview, a different perspective about death and dying and life. And so we can see the same situation with the hope of Jesus and and we mourn differently and it's the hope that changes. And and Peter is going to bring this message of hope. In verse number four, it says, To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for, for salvation ready to be revealed in this last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if indeed be, be, you have been grieved by various trials. So verse number six, I want you to underline greatly rejoiced in various trials. Greatly rejoice in various trials. Do you guys often use those words in uh, the same sentence? Rejoice in trials and great trials. Not, not very often. Even biblically, we, we, we don't rejoice in great trials. Yet, yet, I have yet to see one of you post on your Facebook or call me or text me or just come tell me how terrible something is happening in your life and just how excited you are about it. How happy you are to be in that situation and just so giddy about it. But yet, there, there is this connection in the Bible that, that, that these fires and these trials that God allows in our lives, they produce a character, they produce a godly outcome that you will not get apart from those trials. And, and, and Peter is preaching to a group and to us and telling us in this hope in Jesus, even in trials, there, there is a, 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 a hope. Let me quick example and I'm not really teaching this verse. I'm just trying to get to the point where I can give the background of Peter's life. But um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You guys know the story, right? They're, they're, they're told to bow down to Nebi. They refuse. So Nebi takes his, his guys 
and, and he, he, he throws them into this fire and he's so angry by this point that he commands that they turn the, the furnace up to seven times hotter than what it would normally be. So maybe it was, a, it was a furnace with four walls and an open ceiling and it would have been a place where things could go in and have an opening and, and, and in there, the, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into this fire. The Bible says that the flames were so hot within the furnace that when the, when the soldiers got near to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, what happened? The flames came out and consumed the soldiers. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, now they're walking around and, and, and all of a sudden Jesus is in the middle of the fire with them. And they're dancing, you know, dancing a little jig. They're having a good time in there and people are looking inside like freaking out. And Nebi shows up and he says, didn't I throw three men in the fire? And yet I see four. And the fourth is as if the son of God. Now let me tell you something about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the midst of that fire. They could have come out. Do you think any soldier was going to grab them and throw them back in? There was nobody in their right mind that was going to get anywhere near that fire again. They were free. They were scot-free. They were out of the fire. They, did they leave the fire? They stayed in the fire. Why? Why? Come on, y'all. Who was in the fire? Jesus was in the fire. That's why they stayed in the fire. Because Jesus was in there. They stayed in the fire because that's where Jesus was. And I know it's not simple, and I'm not trying to dumb down or numb down anybody's trials or tribulations, but I do pray for us as a church. I do wish for us as a people that we would learn that lesson in that the Bible's full of it. I can't find yet anywhere in the Bible where somebody's happy, healthy, and wealthy all the time. It's not biblical. It's, just, it's, it's, it's in the fire where God changes lives. It's in the fire that God does something amazing. And Peter says, stay in that fire, rejoice in it, find hope in it. In verse 7, he says that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So stay in it. You'll be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though you do not see him yet believing you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of joy, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Does this sound like a dumb fisherman writing to you? Doesn't this sound like somebody who's got his stuff together? And no doubt he did because of that, that impact that Jesus had on his life and changing his life. And so the word, I, the first word I asked you to underline in verse one was what? Was pilgrim. Our first pilgrim was who? Abraham, the father of our faith. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise and is in a foreign country dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob and heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city who has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. There's only one city that has foundations, whose maker and builder is God. And that's New Jerusalem, heaven, where you and I will spend eternity. That's the city that has foundations. And the crazy thing about Abraham was God said, hey, Abraham, go. And Abraham didn't, say, didn't know where he was going. And he didn't say, okay, where should I go? Like by the time he got like halfway down the street, he realized that God never even told him where to go and what direction. He just said, go. And the crazy thing was that Abraham obeyed. He just went. He didn't even know where he was going. But as he journeyed as a pilgrim through this life, he was headed for a city who had, who, whose foundations was, and maker was God. 
And that city was heaven. And it's that same pilgrimage that Peter's talking about in 1 Peter. And and those pilgrims that this letter's addressed to is you and me. And we are pilgrims like Abraham who set the tone for us, who just went and followed, understanding that this world is not our home. We are just passers through. The Bible describes it as a tent that's temporary. And that our real house is in heaven. Our real dwelling is eternal. Amen? And so as pilgrims, this is who, Peter's draw, who Peter is writing to. So now I want to give you the history of Peter's life. And here's my heart in this, you guys. My, my heart is that, again, and I think I've said it already probably three times. But if, if, we, if we just read and, 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 and look at what Peter said and we remove that from who Peter is, I think we're going to miss some of it. I want us to read, I want us to study the next four or five weeks through 1 Peter with, with, with this in mind that, that Peter was, was somebody of like passions. He was somebody like you and I. Somebody whose heart was, was broken many times. So as I tell his story, I'm just going to, if it's okay with you guys, I'm just going to become Peter. Is that all right? All right, here we go. Hi, I'm Peter. I grew up in the city of Galilee. Oh, what a beautiful city. Galilee, as far as I'm concerned, was one of the most beautiful places in all of Israel. I was a fisherman there. My dad was a fisherman before me, and it was a family business, and we were good at it. We knew the Sea of Galilee, and we loved that area, and everything was wonderful. I can remember when Jesus came to town, I first started hearing about this guy. Many people believed he was the Messiah. Some said he was a prophet and a good man. And his teaching was was growing and and people were coming to follow him. And I can remember when he was in Capernaum and after he had taught all day, I was, I was home and I was tending the nets and I was there working in the family business. And Jesus came to me. Can you believe it? He came to me and he said, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. I remember that day I had a decision to make. I was a successful fisherman. And to follow Jesus would mean to leave everything that was custom to and everything that was comfortable and that I knew. And I'm so glad I made the right decision that day. I'm so glad I decided to follow Jesus. And that day I left the nets and everything that was comfortable and everything that I knew. And I began to follow Jesus. In those early days, he he came to my house. We had been working and Jesus had been all day on the um, praying and, and spending time with people and went to church that morning. And in between church and the evening stuff, came to my house and he healed everybody who was coming. He even healed my mother-in-law. Now, I wasn't sure how I felt about that, but but the good thing was my mother-in-law, she, she, she was able to cook for us and, and you would have loved her cooking. She was a great cook. And Jesus just continued to minister and heal people all day. And the very next day, the crowds came back expecting the same thing. And, and I was excited and I wanted Jesus to come and, and, and heal all the people and touch them. But Jesus had other plans. So, you know, I felt like, you know, maybe Jesus needed a PR person. Maybe he wasn't so good at some of those things. And, 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 and he wanted to do things differently and he was in a different place. And I, I wanted him to come and where the crowds were. But, you know, Jesus really wasn't so interested in, in just the big crowds more interested in the individual people. And so we followed Jesus as, as he began to, to travel. I can remember the first time I watched him heal somebody with leprosy. You know, leprosy is an ugly thing. Leprosy today is something that we don't see or deal with often. But in my day, 
Leprosy was a death sentence. It was worse than a death sentence because everybody that you love and care for could never touch you, never touch another human soul. Can you imagine never having physical touch again? Can you imagine being so dirty that when you walked on the street, if somebody even got within 50 feet of you, you'd have to yell at them, I'm dirty and unclean, and they would get away from you as fast as they could? We saw a leper one day, and Jesus began to approach him. And again, I wanted to warn him, and maybe he didn't know the the dangers of approaching somebody with leprosy, but Jesus was so different. And he came, and he was face to face, and he touched him, and he healed him. I watched him heal blind people. And I watched Jesus do so many miracle things. One day he told us to go to the other side of the sea. You know, the Sea of Galilee, that one that I had grown up on. And that particular day, we all got in the boat and Jesus was with us. And there arose a huge storm on the Sea of Galilee. You know, we get these storms in storm season, but this one was unique. And the waves were crashing and the wind was blowing. And I was sure that we were, gonna, we were all going to die on the boat. And Jesus, he was underneath sleeping. Can you believe that? Sleeping? So finally I went down and I roused him out of his sleep and I said, Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing and we're going to die? And he looked at me with disappointment as if to say, Peter, you just don't get it. Don't get what, Lord? And he got up and he came to the bow of the boat and he stood on the bow of the boat and he raised both of his hands to the heavens. And he just said two words, be still. I've never seen anything like it in my life. Two words. And the entire Sea of Galilee became immediately a sea of glass. And we got to the other side just like he said we would. When we got to the other side, we were in a place called Gadara. In Gadara, they had this this, this really infamous man, um, demon-possessed guy. He was all over the news and was on everybody's Facebook pages and their Instagram from all the weird stuff he was doing all the time. And everybody was so afraid of this guy. It was rumored that he was filled with 6,000 different demons. And he would run naked through fire and he would cut himself and he was evil and they would chain him and he would bust chains and nobody could keep him and, and, and everybody was just terrified. But not Jesus. Jesus was so different. Jesus came and, 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 and Jesus cast the demons out of this guy. Never forget that day. He he cast the demons into a a herd of pigs that were that were near there, and they they ran down the hill and committed suicide. It was the first time we had deviled ham. Jesus, but you know Jesus was just amazing to be around. I remember Jesus was not liked much by the religious leaders and the rulers. For whatever reason, they just didn't get along with Jesus real well. They didn't see the Jesus that I saw. They didn't know the Jesus that I knew. But there was one of them. His name was Jairus. And he had a need. And you know, the funny thing about Jairus was that even though he didn't like Jesus, when his daughter died, he came to Jesus. And he asked for help. Because he was near and dear. And that daughter was everything to him. And you know, Jesus didn't repay evil for evil and remind J. Iris and the rest of the religious rulers how they had treated him and their thoughts of him. You know, Jesus went with that guy. 
And he went to his place and he raised his daughter from the dead and gave her back to Jairus. And Jairus' life was forever changed. You know, one time Jesus sent us out in the early days. We had been with him all the time and watching him teach and do miracles. And some of us were feeling like we had practiced a lot. Now we wanted to get in the game. And, and so Jesus sent us out two by two. And we went out and he said that we would have the power to heal the sick and cast out demons and do miracles in his name. And we went out and God did such an amazing work in that short-term missions plan that Jesus sent us all out in. And we came back, we were so excited to tell Jesus what happened. You know, one of the things I remember about Jesus the most was that day. Because he was so joyful, he was so excited for us, he was so happy for us. And he had such exceedingly joy as we came back and we reported to him the things that God was doing and the things that we were able to do in his name. His teaching was so amazing. You know, he was getting pretty popular by this point. And one day he had taught. He had taught all day long. And thousands of people were gathering and Jesus just kept teaching and they just kept staying. Not like that pastor that you guys have. That Jesus could teach all day and people would listen. He liked him. And Jesus taught all day and it was getting late and the people were hungry. And Jesus came to us because he had compassion on the people. And he told us to feed the people. Can you believe the nerve of this guy? We're like, where are we going to get enough food to feed all these people? A year's salary wouldn't feed all these people. And Jesus said, well, what do you have? There was a little boy among us. And he had one little Lunchable. And we brought that little boy's Lunchable to Jesus. And in it were five loaves and two fish. And Jesus took that little boy's Lunchable and he held it over his head as if he was almost in a different place. And he blessed it and he gave thanks. And he began to pass it. He began to hand it to us in baskets and ask us to go and feed the people. And as we went out, we fed the people and we gave them baskets and, and, and we were able to meet their needs. And we'd come back to Jesus. He would hand us another one. And, and, he, and he multiplied in such a miracle that day. And he fed 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. And there was so much food left over at the end of the day. We didn't even use it all. I can remember another time where Jesus put me in the boat. Except for this time, Jesus wasn't with us. As You know, he often would remove himself and he would spend time in prayer and seeking God. And one time he put us in the boat and he told us to go on the other side and he would meet us there. And, and again, there was a storm on the Sea of Galilee. And again, we felt like we were going to perish and die. And one of the other guys was on the front of the boat and he, he started to call out that he, he thought he saw something on the water. And so I came to the bow of the boat to look and I think it was Jesus. So I called out and I said, Jesus, if that's, for, if that's you, permit me to come. And I got out of the boat, and unlike the rest of you, I walked on water. Do you know me and Jesus are the only people in human history that have ever walked on water? You guys can't put that on your resume. I always get a hard time for being a bull in a china closet, which, guilty, but I got to do some great things following Jesus. I walked on water. And you know, that day I took steps towards Jesus, and everything was wonderful, and then these big waves were coming and I got afraid and I took my eyes off of Jesus and I started looking at the waves and the wind and I sank. And I just remember a hand pulling me out of the water and placing me back on the boat. There was a time when Jesus was teaching in a house and I was with him. And he was there and there were so many people that wanted to hear Jesus and be healed and touched that they were crowding in the house. 
And pretty soon rocks and dirt started hitting me on the head. And I looked up and sure enough, somebody was on the roof tearing the roof apart. And they lowered a paralytic down and into the room where we were. And they wanted Jesus to heal him. And Jesus looked at the paralytic and he said, your sins are forgiven you. You know, those guys were a little disappointed with Jesus. But Jesus said that because his, his illness was caused by his sin. And then Jesus went and healed him anyways. But Jesus was so wonderful. We went to Jerusalem often. It was nothing like Capernaum. I didn't like Jerusalem. Full of tension and the Romans were there and the religious folks were there. And they were always angry with us and Jesus. And they, they, were, they were even baiting Jesus into healing people on the Sabbath. There was times when, when, when Jesus just would have compassion and, and they would wait till the Sabbath came and they would purposefully bring Jesus sick people to see what he would do. And you guys know what Jesus did. He would touch them and heal them. And they would get so angry because Jesus was, was doing work on the Sabbath. And I thought to myself, what's wrong with these people? Somebody's life has changed and, and healed and is better. And, and yet they, they didn't get it. You know, I traveled with Jesus all over Israel, from the far south to the far north. The farthest north we ever went in Israel was a place called Caesarea Philippi. Pastor Chris is going there in November of 2018. You should go with him. It's beautiful. It's one, it's one of the second most beautiful place in all of Israel next to the Galilee. It's the greenest place in all of Israel. And in Caesarea Philippi in the far north is the headwaters of the Jordan River. The most beautiful, crisp, clear water just coming right out of the rock as if it came from heaven itself. And in that place in Caesarea Philippi, there was a temple to the god Pan. And there was a, it was a place of idol and pagan worship that was there. And Jesus took us there as disciples. And, and as we were there, he, he looked at us and he said, all of these people are here worshiping and making all these different choices for their life. Who do people say that I am? And we went and we took turns answering Jesus' questions of who people said he was. But Jesus wasn't really too interested in what everybody else said that he was. He was really more interested in who we thought he was. And then he looked at us and he said, but who do you say that I am? I'll remember that day. Oh man, that day was special. That was my crowning moment. Something came over me and I, I, it wasn't even from me. And I said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus looked at me and he said, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. Blessed are you. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Oh, boy, I have to admit my head was a little big that day. I was feeling good about myself. And I, I knew that the, the rock that Jesus was going to build his church on was not me. Being Peter or Petra, the little stone, I knew the rock that Jesus was going to build his church on was the confession that I made that he was the Christ, the son of the living God. You know, shortly after that, Jesus said that it was time to go back to Jerusalem, but this time would be different. That this time he would fall into the hands of sinful men and that the Sanhedrin and the scribes, would, would, he would suffer many things at their hands and that he would even die. And as you guys know, I, I was this PR guy, so I pull him off to the side. And I was feeling pretty good about myself because the Father had just revealed some things to me, you know. And I told him, Jesus, not so, Lord. 
you can't die. You can't. Gotta stop talking about all that death stuff, Jesus. It's not fitting in with our program here. And Jesus said to me, Simon, get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful for the things of God, but the things of men. And oh man, my heart broke. And once again, I just didn't get it. Today, looking back, I know that that Jesus was talking about heavenly things and. And I get it now, but I just didn't get it. I kept thinking that he was going to set up his kingdom here on earth and, and we were going to get a place to rule and reign with him. As we headed back to Jerusalem, it was amazing when we got there. The people had welcomed Jesus like I'd never seen before in his triumphal entry. They were laying palm branches down on the street for Jesus to, to walk on and they were fanning him and they were bowing down and worshiping him and they gave him a colt that nobody had ever rid, ridden on and they, they put him on it and they, they marched him down the street under this ticker tape parade. Well, on our scale, you know. And, and the Pharisees and those religious people, of course, they came in and got angry as they usually did. And they commanded that Jesus tell the, the disciples and the people to stop worshiping him. And Jesus looked at him that day and he said, if they stop, the very rocks will cry out and worship me. And then I can remember Jesus stopped at the end of that parade. And I didn't know why he stopped and he began to weep. And as Jesus looked over the city, he wept over the city of Jerusalem and his heart was broken. And he had told us that told the city that, that they had missed their day of visitation and how he longed to gather them as a hen gathers her chicks, but that they missed it. And he wept bitterly over the city of Jerusalem. And then next, he, he went into the temple. And when he went into the temple, there were, they were people there and they were, they were robbing and stealing money. And they were taking the lambs and they were selling them for, for high prices. And Jesus got angry and he, he, he overturned the tables. And, you know, I loved it. I thought it was the greatest thing. Jesus, he had a whip and he was whipping people and commanding people out of the temple. And he was overturning the money changers. And he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And yet you've made it a den of thieves. And Jesus cleaned house in the temple that day. You know, that week was a blur. We, things just happened so fast all week. And I can remember when the end of the week came towards the end of the week and Jesus wanted to celebrate the Passover with us. He even said that he longed for this day to be with us and to celebrate this, this Passover with us. But something would be different this time. He told me to go and find a man carrying a pitcher of water. Now that was a strange request. Men didn't carry pitchers of water in those days. That was women's work. And so we went and we found it just as Jesus had said. And there we saw the man and we went in and we began to ready ourselves and prepare the Last Supper for Jesus to come. We call it the Last Supper today because it was the Last Supper of the Old Testament. It was the Last Supper before Jesus would die on the cross. And me and the other disciples, we, as we were waiting on Jesus to come, we had important things to talk about. We were talking about who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And I won that conversation, of course, you know. I was winning. The other guys, they couldn't deny I was the greatest. John had a case, and he wanted to argue, but we were figuring out who was the greatest. And then all of a sudden, Jesus showed up for dinner, and things changed. You know, it's customary for us to wash each other's feet. But after that conversation that we all had, there was no way I was washing anybody's feet. And there was no way any of the other disciples were washing anybody's feet. 
And then I remember turning and all of a sudden Jesus, and he's girded himself as a servant. And he has a bowl of water. And he begins one by one to wash all the disciples' feet. And when Jesus came to me, there was no way I was going to let him wash my feet. I couldn't do it. I was, I was broken. I was embarrassed. And I said, Lord, you, you can't wash my feet. I should be washing your feet. And he said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And I said, okay, Lord, then wash my whole body, my head, my hair. Just get it all done. And he said, Peter, there's, there's no need to wash your whole body, just, just your feet. And I can remember, I, again, I was, I was bragging and I was telling Jesus that I would never leave him or forsake him. And as we gathered around the table, he had said that somebody would. And I said, Lord, it won't be me. Even if I have to die for you, I won't deny you. And he said, Peter, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. I didn't know what that meant. There was no way. Shortly after dinner, he led us across the Kidron Valley into a place that Jesus often liked to go. It was a private garden that, that, that a friend of Jesus had, would loan him from time to time where he would go and pray and spend time with Jesus. First thing I remember about that night after we left the upper room and headed to the Kidron, through the Kidron Valley to the upper room was the, the sacrifices were taking place in the temple. And there was hundreds of thousands of sheep that were being sacrificed. And the blood and water was coming through the Kidron Valley and we had to cross over it. And Jesus' robe went through it as we crossed it. And his, his robe was mingled in, with blood and water. I'll never forget that impression it had on me. Because when we got to the garden, I'd never seen Jesus this way in the three years that I followed him. He was so stressed and he was just not himself. He came to us and he said that he was perplexed even to the point of death and asked that, that we would pray with him and that we would, we would watch and pray. And it had been a long week. And then Jesus separated himself and, and, I, and I tried to pray, but I just couldn't stay awake and I fell asleep. And Jesus came and he said, could you not pray with me for one hour? And I woke up again and I began to seek the Lord. But before I knew it, I was asleep again. And the third time Jesus came to me, it was all just happening so fast. He woke me up and he said, guys, arise, my betrayer's at hand. And I seen all these torches coming and I seen all these soldiers coming and all this commotion. And there was Judas, my friend, and he was kissing Jesus. And next thing I know, the Roman soldiers were grabbing him and they were going to arrest him and they were shackling him. And I didn't know what to do, but I remember my promise that I made to Jesus that I would never leave him even if I had to die. Now, I was pretty good at catching fish, but didn't know how to use a sword very well, but I carried one. So I pulled that sword out and wanting to protect Jesus, I, I went to hit the high priest servant right between his eyes and I missed and I cut his ear off. And Jesus picked up the ear and he looked at me and he said, Peter, put your sword away. He said, no man takes my life, but I give it freely. And Jesus healed that young man's ear. And I'll never forget the last miracle I saw my Lord do was to heal somebody that I had hurt. I followed him back to the high priest's house. It was cold that night. It had been a long day. There was a fire there, and I, and I made a mistake, and I went to the enemy's fire, and I began to warm myself at the enemy's fire. And a little girl, just a little girl, 
she came up to me and she said, weren't you with Jesus? And I told her, get away from me. I never knew the man. She came back a second time. Told her the same thing. Third time she came back, I began to curse and tell her I never knew the man. And right at that moment, Jesus was being led away from the high priest's house and we made eye contact. And I heard the cock crow three times and I remembered the words that Jesus said to me that I would deny him three times and I began to weep bitterly. I can remember that look of love that Jesus had for me in the as we crossed in the courtyard and I seen his eyes and he almost said to me with his eyes, Peter, I love you. Peter, I'm not angry with you. Peter, I love you. And it broke my heart that I denied him those three times. And I went out and I wept bitterly. Crucifixion was a couple days later. It was the next day. And you know, it was like Isaiah said. He had been beaten beyond visage. It was unrecognizable as a man. It was the terrible, it was the most brutal thing I'd ever witnessed in my life. But I was there. You know, we didn't have time. It was the Passover to really take care of the body. And they, they, they wrapped it and they anointed it and they placed it in the tomb. And we had planned to go back Sunday and take care of it. And the, the ladies went first. And as the ladies came back, they said the tomb is empty. And so you guys know, John and I, we began to race to the tomb. And John, being younger and thinner than I am, he beat me to the tent. He beat me to the tomb, and he ran faster than I did. But he didn't go down in. And you know me, I'm a bull in a china closet. And John's standing there looking in, and I just burned right past him and down into the temple, into the tomb. And there I saw the place where they had laid Jesus, and his clothes were there. They were just fallen, laying neatly, and the the handkerchief that was covering his face was folded neatly in his place. But there was no Jesus. We went back to the upper room as the disciples and we began to pray and wondered what happened to Jesus. Did somebody steal his body? And that night, guess what happened? Jesus appeared. Doors were closed and he just appeared in the room. Thomas wasn't there that night. Poor guy picked the wrong, wrong day to miss church. Jesus showed up that night. And you know, then after that, I didn't see Jesus for a while. And so I told the other guys, I'm going to go back and I'm going fishing. I know how to fish and I'm just going to go fishing. So we went back and we began to fish. And we toiled and worked all night. And we never, we didn't catch anything. The next day, we, we saw a man standing on the shore and he was yelling out to us. And he said, have you caught anything? And if you know us fishermen, we don't like to tell the truth about catching fish, right? But we told him the truth and we said, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. And he said to cast the net on the other side. And as we did, we hauled in the biggest catch we've ever, we've ever hauled in in my life. And at that point, I knew it was Jesus. And I jumped in the water, clothes and all. And I swam to the shore where he was there cooking breakfast for us. Best fish I ever ate. And Jesus looked at me and he said, Peter, do you love me? And you know, Jesus was asking me if I agape him, if I really love him. And I and I did love him, but I knew in my heart I, I wasn't sold out and I was struggling. And I said, Lord, I, I like you. And he asked me three times, Peter, do you love me? And he restored me. And then he led us from there and we, we went as far as Bethany. And we stood there and we watched him ascend into heaven. And two angels appeared. And they said, guys, why are you, men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing into heaven? 
the same Jesus who went up will come down again. And then we obeyed what he said and we went to Jerusalem. And he said to tarry ye there until the Holy Spirit would come and give us power. And we waited in Jerusalem. And sure enough, on Pentecost, Jesus fulfilled his promise to us and he sent the Holy Spirit with power. And a rushing mighty wind came out and we went out into the streets of Jerusalem and we began to preach the gospel and 3,000 people got saved. We went out into the streets and we, we healed blind people and we, the deaf walked and the lame... What did the lame do? The lame walked and the deaf heard and the blind saw. And then the most amazing thing happened. I saw a vision. And you guys know Jesus, after all the times that I had denied him, put my foot in my mouth, and I told him not so, Lord, and I did all these dumb things throughout all the years, he was still using me. Even so much so that he gave me a vision that he would let me help bring the gospel for the first time in human history to the Gentiles. And I had a vision to bring the the gospel to a man named Cornelius. And there I got to share the gospel with him. And I realized that Jesus was bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And now, here I am years later, and I'm writing this book to you, First Peter. And these are my experiences. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's stand. Right. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day. And Father, we thank you for Peter. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for really his story, Lord God. And there's so much more in there that I just had to cut out today to get through it. And Lord, the Mount of Transfiguration and um, just the many other things that Peter was a part. But Lord, the story is, the truth is that this is a guy who walked with you for three years and you radically changed his life. You took him from somebody, Lord, who was who was lowly and and common and you made him extraordinary. And Lord, I know there's people in this room right now who, who, who would, would be like Peter. And yet Lord, in in your hands, you'll make them and you'll make us extraordinary. Lord, I pray if there's anybody in this room today that doesn't know Jesus or wants to get their heart and life right with Jesus, that right now, God, that, that you would call them and by your Holy spirit to repent, to get saved, to get right. If that's you out there today, if you're here today and God's Holy Spirit is calling you, if Jesus is calling you, I want you to pray this prayer with me together out loud. Dear Lord Jesus, please come into my heart. Forgive me of my sins. Be my Lord and Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I believe that you died and rose again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week.